Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we're joined by Dwight Boyd, Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, University of Toronto. Dwight, welcome to Pipeline. Thank you. So, how was it the case that you began uh, uh, thinking philosophically about education? Uh, was this uh, something that was sort of lifelong, or did you come to it later on? What, what, what was your, your entry point here? Uh, the easiest answer is by accident. Okay. I was a philosophy major at Kansas University, and um, I got burnt out taking courses. Okay. And my, my last year, an associate dean had an innovative program called Independent Studies, there were 13 of us, mm. and he said, there are only two rules. You can't take any course. You just have to find areas you want to study, and find professors to supervise them. Okay. And the person, one of the persons I started working with was Richard DeGeorge, the chair. Hmm. Now, you might think, I'm going to say, and he introduced me to philosophy of education. No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Instead, um, the accident was I applied to a number of major universities on his advice. Okay. I didn't get in with money. Okay. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, those. Mm. I had a good enough record to do it. Um, and I got a letter in the mail congratulating me on being accepted to the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I didn't know philosophy of education existed. I okay. didn't know HGSE existed. Okay. I trot off to DeGeorge and say, what is this? Sure. And his answer, if my memory is correct, sure. was, oh, didn't I tell you? Israel Scheffler was writing chairs at the time, mm. wrote me to try to recruit people with reasonably strong backgrounds in philosophy, and I sent them your name. Oh, wow. So I ended up going, because they eventually gave me the money to go. And, um, sure. And I think it was a really good idea, because I think what I was burnt out about, in part, was a kind of philosophy. I liked more applied questions. Okay. And I, I think that's probably, and then, you know, it, it got interesting. But the program at Harvard was also very interesting because I took yeah. as many courses in straight philosophy, if right. not more, right. than philosophy of education. Right. People, Rawls, Putnam, Walzer, people sure. like that, sure. which was an opportunity I wasn't going to miss. Sure, of course. I mean, and it's, it sounds as though, I mean, uh, uh, to my understanding, I mean, those days, uh, Israel Scheffler, uh, sort of at the helm of things, uh, really allowed for uh, that type of an experience, right? That is to say, uh, a very strong uh, basis in uh, what you might call straightforward philosophy, uh, informing then the educational questions. Definitely. As a matter of fact, even though the School of Education had done away with comprehensive exams for all departments, mm. he kept it. Okay. And we had three, two three-hour written exams. Okay. And we had to, we could choose, you know, ethics, political philosophy, epistemology, you know, whatever. But none of neither of the choices could be philosophy of education. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. To ensure that there'd be a I, uh, yeah. I, I guess you know 
back then, I didn't say, why are you doing this? Sure. But you could have kind of guessed. Sure, of course. <laughs> oh, very nice, very nice. Now, so, so given that, given that uh, um, uh, initial uh, engagement, uh, as you said, by accident, um, what have been some of the things that you've uh, uh, intentionally, or perhaps even accidentally, uh, uh, returned to thinking about uh, uh, in, your, in your work? I mean, what are some of the questions that have been uh, motivating you? What are the themes that you've uh, really dwelt with over time? Uh, that's a good question. Um, well, primarily ethics and political philosophy. That's what I did my comprehensives on. Sure. Uh, but entirely different than what I had to study to pass at comprehensives. Sure. Uh, from day one, from my first experience with philosophy as an undergraduate, as a second-year student, I think I've always thought of philosophy in a particular way. I've never been satisfied to go out and just study the biggies and figure out what they had to say. Sure. Um, I mean, I did that. I forced myself to. Sure. But I was primarily interested in things that spoke to something problematic in my own life. Then that was, uh, that tendency was magnified a bit by the fact that I went to Harvard the same year that Larry Kohlberg went okay. in developmental psychology. Okay. And because I knew something about his work, he let me in his seminar. Okay. And so, from my first year in graduate school, I've always been interested in the intersection between psychology and philosophy. Okay. And I, and I mean that in terms of how they are needed to inform each other on some kinds of problems mm. to have adequate questions. I think there are empirical questions that philosophers should be looking at. Sure. So my dissertation was on developing an undergraduate course in ethics for freshman, sophomore, that took seriously the problems of egoism and relativism that I faced as a student at that time. Okay, so, but when you say the problems of egoism and relativism, for, for uh, our listeners, what, 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 might that, what, what might that mean? Yeah. Well, the phrase I used in publications subsequently was uh, the problem of sophomoriasis. Sure. It's the sophomoriasis that you ask all questions and doubt all answers. Sure. But then the egoism, psychologicalism in particular, and relativism, forms of relativism, in my analysis and my dissertation, comes about as, as metapositions that give you escape positions out of the burdens of developing a better way of thinking about moral issues. Oh, interesting, right. And yeah. I, did, I did actually collect data as well as develop the course and teach it twice. In fact, the first time I taught it was with Larry Kohlberg and Carol Gilligan to about 60 undergraduates at Harvard. Okay. Uh, it was a team effort. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And, and so, and, and to your mind then, um, uh, uh, what are the other sort of uh, uh, abiding uh, questions that you've returned to? I mean, uh, you mentioned, of course, uh, uh, ethics, and you've talked here about ethics a bit, but you also talked about uh, political philosophy. I mean, yeah. uh, what are some of the, the, the questions or considerations of uh, uh, life lived amongst others in the political context that you've, you've considered? Well, having studied with John Rawls when he was actually, the first time I took his course in political philosophy, he was maybe three-quarters of the way through writing The Theory of Justice. Okay. We were reading it in Xerox form. Sure. And his lectures were all that. And then I, I took two years off as a CEO and went back after he'd finished to sit in and see how it was finished. So, needless to say, issues of justice sure. uh, have figured prominently in my early thinking, and with a Rawlsian flavor. Hmm. Um, I just published a book which is, um, well, the title is Becoming of Two Minds About Liberalism, 
a chronicle of philosophical and moral development. Mm. And it's a collection of essays over 40 years that trace the change from my early liberal flag-waving Rawlsian um, days through a disaffection phase into trying to figure out what to do with the mess. Mm. The disaffection comes from the political, having my eyes open about gender and, in this book, mostly racism sure. and liberalism's inability to handle that problem. Sure. Um, so I had a kind of slow but um, still significant personal kind of epiphany mm. in terms of how I oriented my thinking. Mm. It was slow over time. Sure. Um, and now I make a lot of enemies by criticizing liberalism. Sure. Uh, what are your critiques of liberalism <laughs> uh, uh, that are sort of central at this moment? Yeah. Primarily one, and I have to be really open about this. Of course. Most of my thinking about it has been just drawn from Iris Marion Young, mm. and in particular Justice and the Politics of Difference, that sure. book. Um, and actually Barbara Applebaum, she was one of my students, and sure. we were teaching a course together on multiculturalism. Mm. And um, we started reading stuff um, that was different than multicultural. Sure. And we ran across her work. And it completely changed how I saw the world, literally. Okay. Uh, so the bottom line is, to put it as bluntly as possible, I don't think liberalism's primary assumption that you need to start all social, moral, political theorizing from the point of view of the ontologically discrete individual sure. can ever come to grips with anything other than a small aspect of racism. Okay. It just misses the group relation stuff. Sure. And it's in it, I don't think it, in principle, it can. Sure. We may disagree about this. <laughs> sure, but, but so, so the idea here being that, uh, uh, that the, the foundational sort of um, uh, uh, starting point of, of, of liberalism is just sort of wrong-headed as it misses the world in some ways. It misses the facts of that, the world. That one in particular. Yeah. It picks some up that are very dear to my heart. Sure. That's why I'm still of two minds. Sure, of course. Um, so um, I'll give you an example yeah. in the book. I, the last chapter in the book resulted as a result of a invitation to go back to China, I've been many times, um, to give a major lecture at Shandong University. Okay, sure, yeah. And the person who invited me was Chinese that I met a long time ago, but he taught at Southern Illinois University. And he liked my critique of liberalism. He said, you can just do that. But I happened to go see the film uh, Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry, mm. the Chinese dissident and sure. incredible artist. Sure, yeah. And it's a depiction, of course, of his battle with the, the party in China. Sure. And imprisonment and so yes, forth. And, yes, yes. Yeah. Halfway through that film, I said to myself, you cannot in good conscience go back to China and just badmouth liberalism because if you really dig deep, there are parts of it you wouldn't want to give up and you sure. should be saying that in, sure. in China. Well, you know, it sounds as though, I mean, so you earlier on uh, uh, remarked that, um, you know, you had this, this moment of being sort of burnt out with, uh, with philosophy. Uh, in my very uh, early in days, very yeah. early days, right? But the reason that you were burnt out is because the philosophy 
uh, and I'm paraphrasing you now, of course, uh, but it didn't really respond to the world well enough, right? It was, it, it was sort of, uh, you had these more sort of uh, applied interests. You wanted yep. it to have some effect. And what I'm hearing now is a bit of a mirror of that in some ways, right? I mean, it sounds as though uh, uh, liberalism, which uh, sort of held your interest for quite some time uh, and really kind of uh, sustained you in, in, in various uh, projects in philosophy of education, um, fails, in some regards, fails uh, to respond to the world well enough. Um, and so what I'm hearing is, is sort of an abiding sense of uh, um, frustration, and I, I mean that in the best possible way, but an abiding sense of frustration in trying to get uh, perhaps um, a philosophical approach that really does enough work in the world that we have. Yes, that's true, that and I, I would put one more. Of course. I, I'd go back to my original statement of when I was an undergraduate of it's not just about the world in general, but my place in it. Yes, good. And, and you know, actually, I came to looking at racism more through my work in gender. Okay. And um, living with a very, very strong feminist historian. Good. Um, and it's so it's not just race; it's gender; it's yeah. any kind of oppression. Sure. And it was in the gender stuff that I learned to think about my complicity. Hmm. And that then say, wait a minute, when you sure. look at issues in the world from the point of view of racial relations, yeah, you can't escape it. Sure. Now, uh, so, so, so given, given this, this sense of sort of uh, thinking about uh, yourself, and perhaps we all ought to think about ourselves and uh, the problems uh, 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 that uh, sort of we are speaking to uh, in various ways, and the way in which our, our work might be able to speak to those problems um, uh, in unique uh, 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 or very particular ways, uh, to your mind, what sort of, uh, what sort of work uh, should philosophy of education be engaging into the future? What sort of uh, questions ought we be asking, or uh, how ought we perhaps uh, uh, arrange our studies of the questions that uh, uh, sit before us? Well, I think I'll go back to something I said earlier about my interest in sort of empirical questions. And yeah. I think I said that. Yeah. Um, I'll give you two examples. I started a project in, well, in Ontario, maybe you know this, there's something like 30,000 high school students taking philosophy for credit. Mm. It's the only English-speaking English political jurisdiction that has that kind of program. And I got interested in that, and I started collecting data on it. Sure. Um, and there's a project now that's continued since then. That I think that's an example of philosophers are going to look at how philosophy is being taught and how it might have impacts of various sorts. That's mm. not what they're measuring now, but it's sure. a, a step in the door. The other example, which is dear to my heart, also is um, years ago I teamed up with a developmental psychologist who was also one of Kohlberg's students mm -hmm. um, at OISE, and um, we had a multi-year empirical research project studying how adolescents and teachers understand forms of oppression such as Classism, racism, okay. and sexism. And uh, it was a collaboration of the sort that I would like to see more of. Because, okay. Good. you know, I developed a theoretical framework using Iris Marion Young sure. and saying if you're going to figure out how they think about it, you have to have some standard to figure out, well, what's better mm. if you're really looking at it in a way that makes philosophically. And then we had to figure out how to actually tap that empirically. Mm which is a really interesting question, but we did it. Sure. Um, and I, I think there are opportunities like that in many different areas that 
uh, you know, I'm well aware that the fact that I dirty my hands with empirical data sometimes is kind of anathema to a lot of members. At age 70 and retired, I don't care. Sure, <laughs> sure. But it's where the questions take you, right? And, and yeah. It's, it's, and so, so it does make, it does make uh, good sense, and it can be, uh, to my mind, uh, very well justified. You know, uh, Dwight, you, you've given us a, a real, uh, a, a very good sense of uh, the sort of work that we might be able to do moving forward. I mean, I think oftentimes it's the case that uh, when we think of uh, philosophy of education, we don't think of uh, the ways in which uh, we can uh, perhaps speak to uh, our colleagues uh, who are working through other disciplines. Um, and uh, it sounds as though that work might be uh, not only important uh, for the future, but perhaps even necessary. I think so. I mean, necessary in more than one ways. I think there will be kinds of questions that, let's put it this way, they can be answered purely from the point of view of philosophy, philosophy of education, but it's an inadequate answer. Yeah. Um, now, I think there are actually philosophical problems that suffer in that way, but without paying attention to actual empirical fact. But, you know, I can't make those arguments right now, but I, that's, sure. that's, that's what I actually believe. Sure. Dwight Boyd, thank you so much for sitting and chatting with us. This has been a, a very uh, thoughtful and uh, uh, interesting conversation. Thank you for inviting me. It was an honor. Thank you so much. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song, Summer as our theme.